I got the uh, privilege of going deer hunting yesterday morning, and and uh, after seeing two deer and them stressing me out because I got the adrenaline going, and they're like just out of range, and there's 82 trees in the way, but I can hear them, and I got up way too early, and then my adrenaline's going, and then I'm sick to my stomach because I got the shakes, and uh, it was awesome, you know. It was awesome. I mean, I didn't get to shoot anything, but I get to see deer. Um, I hadn't seen any in a while, and uh, I got to see a fox. It ran across my path. Um, it was all mangy looking. I wanted to nail him, but I don't think that's legal. Um, and then I saw a skunk before it even got bright out. So, I mean, how cool is that? We can go not very far, jump in the woods, put on some camo, get too cold, and enjoy the heck out of it, and see the beauty of God's creation, and yet see animals chasing one another, and then the stinking squirrels, Right? Everybody loves the squirrel. The sound, it's, it's like three ounces, but it sounds exactly like a 180-pound deer. I, I don't get that, you know. They, they drive me nuts. So anyway, all that said, when I didn't shoot the animals, um, even though I really wanted to with my bow, um, I actually went and sat in my dad's cabin for a couple hours and just got some quiet time with the Lord. There's no cell phone signal. I had my Bible with me, so I had to read the paperback Bible. I know. And while I did that, I read the entire book of Galatians because I I need perspective. You know, Paul's writing to a group of people, and every week we look at one chapter, but we can kind of forget the overall theme, that God, through the pen of Paul and through the, the love and the mercy of Paul, Paul is calling out to this group of people and going, what is going on with you? What happened? You received the gospel of Jesus Christ that takes away your sins and frees you from the guilt and the shame. And, and you've received this gospel that sets you free from sin. You no longer need to go back to a system that you can make sacrifices to atone for your sins. God set you free and his atonement, him making us right with himself through the blood of his son, is all that we need. And we, it's such a good sacrifice that when we fail, and you will fail just like me, you can come back to the altar and say, Lord, I've messed up again and I need your grace. And he says, come to me, all you who thirst, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will fulfill your thirst. I am the bread of life. It never runs out. His grace is sufficient. And so in the all reality of the scheme of this book, I don't want you to miss the point. When we get in the nuts and the bolts, basically what God is doing is he's revealing to this church that's turned aside from the true gospel to a system of works where you can earn your salvation. We are all prone to do that, even if we weren't raised with the law. We live in a society where, you know, how many good old boys do you know that try to do everything just right in order, hey, God's going to accept me because I've done more good than I've done bad. I mean, that's, the, that's a false gospel. It's not biblical. And yet I find myself daily struggling with that personally. I, I try to earn God's favor, not thinking, hey, I'm going to get up today and I'm going to earn God's favor, but falling into that rut that I walked in for so long. I'm not lying, so God's pleased with me. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. But a system of do's and don'ts will never save you. It'll only frustrate you. And that's what the Galatians were experiencing. And Paul was going, look, I've done everything I can to please God through following the law. I've done all the laws, all the rituals, but I didn't have any peace. And God had to break through my religion and get down to my heart and show me I needed him to give me a new heart because my heart was prone to worship 
me. And, and that's all of our stories. We are prone to worship something other than the Creator. And when we don't worship something else necessarily, we'll be pretty good, but we'll start worshiping ourselves. And God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall put no one else, nothing else in my place. I want to deliver you from that system, that dead system of works. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul wrote this. He said, salvation is by grace, something we don't deserve that God gives us anyway, through faith, something that God gives us, not of works, because he knows everyone is prone to do this when they can earn something. They start telling everybody how good they are. They start bragging about, hey, look what I did. I'm the same way. I built a mailbox stand the other night. I was like, hey, Kelly, check it out. Look how great it is. I boasted. I was excited. You know, it's kind of a last minute thing. Start screwing things together. I put it together. Hey, look what I did. And we are like that with salvation. We try to build this little house of cards and go, look, God, aren't you pleased with me? And he says, no, it's filthy rags. I've given you riches and you're turning it in for rags. And so as Paul's writing to this group, he's saying, don't go back to the rags. Accept the riches that I've given you by Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches. Not anything we can earn. We can't pay him back. He doesn't want us to. Isn't that wonderful? How many people give you something and, and don't give you a, a bill with it? I mean, nobody I mean, even when we do something nice for our neighbor, many times without realizing it, we kind of expect a return. But the law said if you, if you, if you loan somebody something, don't expect a return. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. And then you'll see the love of God poured out. So, finally, Galatians chapter 5. Last week we stopped in verse 10, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in verse... Um, Verse 7, he uses a running illustration. And since we had cross-country yesterday, I'm going to go over this running illustration because I think it's important. Paul loved the Olympics. Not the new Olympics, not Rio Olympics. The Olympics that happened back in the day, and they were going on. And Paul absolutely loved sports. I can't relate with Paul on that. That's not my deal. But I know many of you absolutely love sports. You do everything you can to know the rules and to know how to get better at your skills. And, and you want to do everything you do to, to polish how well you are at them so that you can get better and, and keep going. And so he says, you ran well to the Galatians. You ran well. Now in the Isthmian games, in the, in the games they would compete in, in order to be a runner on a team, you had to be from the nation. You had to be a citizen. So he's saying to them, you ran well. So he's writing to believers. And we know that because you can't run well in the race that God has for you unless you're a citizen of the kingdom. If you are saved by Jesus Christ, if you've been born again to a living hope, you are a citizen of the kingdom. And because of that, we are running a race. He says, you ran well. But who hindered you from obeying the truth? The word for hinder there is who jumped in front of you and knocked you out of your lane. When someone else comes along and says, no, no, this is the rules for the game. They're knocking you out of your lane. They're disqualifying you. 
He says, don't let somebody push you out of your lane. Keep running in the same course that you were running with when you started running with Jesus. He says, who hindered you? Who stepped into your lane and knocked you out and kept you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Getting knocked out of your lane was not according to God's calling. That was the enemy. That was someone else trying to keep you from walking with Jesus. Then he says this, verse 9, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, though, in the Lord, really, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear the judgment, whoever he is. And so Paul gives this first illustration about running, and then he talks about leaven in bread. How many of you guys in here have baked bread before? Yeah. So bread is all this dough, and you get it all whipped together, and at some point you put in leaven. And leaven is yeast that causes the dough to rise. Otherwise, you end up with flatbread. Now, that's all the craze today. But many people don't want the flatbread. They want the big, soft, cushy bread. And that air comes in there because of whatever the yeast does with the dough. And there's like this chemical reaction of some sort that I'm not aware of, so I'm not going to go there. But basically, it just takes a little bit of leaven. If you put too much in there, you end up with your bread all over the oven. But if you put in just the right amount, it raises, gets puffed up. Now, this teaching, this false teaching, a religion of works... A system of do's and don'ts. When you can measure yourself against other Christians, what does it cause people to do? To brag, to boast. We get puffed up. You've heard the expression, you know, don't don't encourage him too much. He won't be able to fit through the door. His head's going to get swollen, you know. And we know people that are like that. You give them a little ounce, just a little bit of encouragement, like, hey, good throw. And they're like, yeah, no, I'm great. And then they literally can't fit through a door. Because they're, they're bragging. They're like, hey, look what I did. And Paul's saying that's got no place in a relationship with Jesus because Jesus paid it all. He did it all. He gives us the faith to continue doing it all. And he's the one that transforms us. So if we can brag about anything, it's not about us. We're filthy sinners. As a matter of fact, if you turn with me to Romans 5, I was reading this yesterday thinking about Romans 5 because we've been studying James chapter 1 on our Wednesday nights. But in Romans chapter 5, this is what he writes. He says this, verse 3. Well, we'll start with verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified by our works. No. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith. And faith is not so much our ability to believe but it's the one in whom we place our trust. Our faith is in Jesus. So he says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the grace that continues to hold us up, we have access to because of what Jesus did. So we don't even get in the room. We don't even get in the door, except Jesus holds the key. He lets us in by faith. And then we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance develops character. And character produces hope. And our hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit 
who was given to us, the promise, right? But here's the deal. I'm trying to find the... Hmm. So here it is, verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So we were out without strength, and Christ died for us even though we were ungodly. And then he says this, and I think this is something we need to pay attention to. He says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Right? So if a man's in trouble, how common is it that someone in, in society will go, hey, there's a bomb sitting next to him, I'll throw myself on it. How often? Not very often. It's not that we necessarily want him to die, it's just that we don't want to die, right? So he says, for scarcely for a good man will someone die. Scarcely. Hardly ever will somebody say, hey, that guy's a good guy, I'll lay my life down on the line in order to save him. It happens, but it's not often is what he's saying. And then he says this, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. It does happen, just not all the time. But here's the deal. Verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, not good, but when we were still sinners. So scarcely in this life will someone die for a good man, yet God, the Lord of all creation, the Son of God, pure in all his ways, died not for good people, but for the ungodly, those who were at war with him, those who were rebelling against him, rejecting his commandments, disobeying him completely, that's who Jesus died for. Isn't that amazing? What a contrast to the love that we think we know. He shows his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For, for if when we were enemies we were re- reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled or brought near, we shall be saved by his life. We were reconciled to God. The, the brokenness between our relationship with us and God was fixed by Jesus' death. How much more will be delivered from the wrath that is to come now that he's alive? He's faithful. He keeps his promises. And so I don't know about you guys, but I can't brag about any of that because if I trust in Jesus, that means I was the filthy sinner he died for. He didn't die for godly people. He didn't die for good people. He died for me. He died for you. And that's to the world, that's to the Jews, that's a stumbling block because they thought they had righteousness because of their relationship with God through the law. But what Paul wrote just a few weeks ago was that the law was only a temporary babysitter, basically. It was a babysitter until Christ would come and fulfill the law, and then they would be able to grow up, no longer being babies, need watched over, but they would be coming to maturity, and with their relationship with Christ, they would no longer need the law to keep them in in the yard, per se. You know, we put a fence in our backyard. We have a fence there to keep our kids from running out in the street. But at some point, we have to open up the fence and trust that they know that we love them and we've kept them out of the street so they don't get hit. They don't do that anymore because the fence is in the way, the law. They do that because they know, they know that they're loved. And Jesus has done the same thing. So, he says, 
I, brethren, I, verse 11, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? There, the false teachers are implying that Paul, hey, look, Paul says you got to be circumcised. Paul says, I never said that. Because if I said that, the Jews would love me. They would love me because I'm still following the law. He says this, though, then the offense of the cross has ceased. He says, I still preach the cross, and if, because I do that, they don't like me. That's the proof that I follow Jesus. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you and confuse you would even cut themselves off. And he's talking about circumcision, so you can kind of see where he's going with that. He says, I wish that they would go ahead and not just circumcise themselves, but essentially, for you farmers or anybody that's been around animals, I wish they'd just go ahead and castrate themselves. And that's very, very harsh words, right? But what he's saying is these people that are legalists, they're reproducing, they're causing to make disciples of legalism, and because of that, they're producing offspring that will also share this false gospel. He says, I just hope that they won't reproduce. I'd rather they be steers instead of bulls. You know, I, I, I wish that God would take their power away and that they would no longer speak at all. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You've been set free. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who said that? Jesus was approached, right, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they, they came to him, and there was this man that was, thought himself pretty smart, and he was a lawyer. Everybody loves lawyers, right? Everyone in here? Yeah? They kind of get a bad rap, but he knew the law, is my point. He had studied it. He had made that his life, and he came to Jesus to inspect him, see if he really was of God, and he said this. He said, good teacher. <laughs> you can sense some sarcasm in that, but he said, good teacher, what... What, what's the most important commandment? What's the number one commandment? And Jesus said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, was he saying that there's two important commandments? No, he was saying that really they're the same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, as you love yourself. If you've done that, you've fulfilled the whole law because the first six to ten of the top ten commandments is this, a right relationship with God, first six, and the last four is right relationship with man. You can never have a right relationship with man until you have a right relationship with God. You got, you got people problems, you got relationship problems, it's because you've got a problem in your relationship with Jesus. That's where the fix comes from. Get right with Jesus and you will be right as a result, as a fruit of your relationship with Jesus. You will treat others, you'll love your neighbor like you love yourself. How many of you in here have a hard time loving yourself? Now many people do, so I'm not poking fun at that. But Jesus loves you, so you can, you know, you can see that you don't need to love yourself, Jesus has. So my point is, we've been set free from the law, but don't use your liberty, don't use your freedom as a right to go out and sin. God cannot bless you if you continue in, in a habitual lifestyle of sin. He won't. He loves you too much. But through love, serve one another. So there seems to be kind of a contrast there. 
You can either use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, for the natural man to do whatever he wants, whatever he desires, whatever he feels right in his own eyes, or he says you can use your liberty to serve one another. Now that's hard, right? Because they are opposing. Many times I'll be out mowing the grass, serving myself, but serving my family and all that stuff. And God will send somebody across my path that he wants me to talk to. I'm like, but I got to get the grass mowed. It's getting dark. And there's this war that goes on, right? God gives divine interruptions. My pastor said it this way. He said, the consecrated life, the, the life that is set apart for God's use is full of interruptions. It just is. So the flesh says, I got to get the grass mowed. I'm just giving an example. I'm not saying anybody's got an issue with this. I'm just, that's my deal. I'm on the grass and it's getting dark out and I have to get it done. Otherwise, it's going to look horrible. And the Lord says, serve this guy. He needs somebody to listen. And so what do I do? Well, I'm very godly, so of course I keep mowing the grass, right? You know, the flesh and the spirit. Now, that's just an example, and I think it's something we can all relate to. We've all got things to get done, and God has his list of to-do things. And so am I going to do his to-do list or mine? Now, many times the grass needs to get done. It's like a foot tall and needs to be mowed. And many times we need to take five minutes and talk to that guy and do the rest in the dark. God gives us what we need, right? So, but what he says is don't use your freedom as an opportunity to do whatever the flesh wants. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So how do we divide, uh, how do we uh, bite, he says, and devour one another? You know, you get the idea of somebody backbiting. Or somebody chewing someone up and spitting them out. But what does that look like? You know, I, I was thinking about that while I was sitting on the deer stand yesterday, okay? And I couldn't help but think of a story in John chapter 5. By the way, it's re- I, I don't want to sound spiritual because I'm not. When I was sitting on the deer stand, I was thinking, is that a deer or is that a squirrel? Oh, wait, I'm supposed to be, you know, because I had decided I was going to go out there and pray. But, man, it's hard to pay attention and think. It is for me anyway. So John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verse 1 says this. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He was going to go to the feast. It says, Now there is an in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. It has five porches or little landing areas around it. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind people, lame people, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, would stir the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well and whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. How many of you guys have suffered for something for 38 years? I'm not even there yet. But he had had this illness, whatever it was, an infirmity that caused him not to be mobile. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want, me, do you want to be made well? So this man's been sitting at this pool. And what I want to point out is that this pool has the name Bethesda. I looked it up this morning. I don't know the word, but it means house of mercy. 
Mercy means compassion. House of compassion. This man had been sick for 38 years. It doesn't say he was there for 38 years, but he'd been sick for 38 years. So what did he do? He had probably had somebody take him to Jerusalem. He had heard about this pool. I don't quite understand what was going on, but it says there that once in a while, the pool would be stirred by an angel. Now, was this superstition? Was this something God was doing special? I don't know. But he was providing this place where people could be healed. And when the pool was stirred, whoever got in right after that, the first person, not everyone, I I imagine the time where they blow the whistle at the old city pool I went to, you know, like everybody's getting out of the water, the lifeguards are getting a break, everybody's, you know, going to snack shack, and then all of a sudden, all the lifeguards are getting ready to go up on their seats, and then the one guy with the whistle goes, and every kid runs to the edge and is like, I'm going to dive in first, it's so hot out. And then he blows the whistle, and it's just chaos. And it's just foaming. And people are running into each other, and they're all like, yes, that's so much better. I'm picturing that. Just chaos. Everybody jumping in line first. Except this is a place where people are being healed, and this man's been sick for 38 years. He comes to the house of mercy and finds what? No mercy. And I say that because you read verse 7, it says, The sick man answered him, Jesus had said, Do you want to be made well? Now, him being at the pool where people are healed, the idea of being made well means made whole. If you got something missing or needing fixed or you're, you're messed up, you got sickness, you'll be made well, you'll be made whole. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another one steps in down before me. No one cares. Hey, I know you're sick, but so am I. So get out of the way man can't move. He's, he's done. No mercy. No compassion. Everyone is thinking about themselves. And so this man finds no healing in the house of mercy. He finds no kindness. That's another word for Bethesda. House of kindness. Did he find any? No. The people that were there that could help him, here's what they're going to do. Jesus said to him, this is what Jesus does, He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Awesome. He doesn't even have to get wet. He stands up, picks up the mat he's been laying on, and he gets to walk away. He doesn't need anybody to help him. Jesus came and helped him. Why did Jesus come help him? Because no one else would. Because look at this. Verse 9, and immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. You see where this is going. It was the Sabbath. You can't be made well on the Sabbath. That's the worst thing in the world, right? That's what the legalist says. Hey, we got rules around here. You can't just be going helping people when it's the Sabbath. This happened another time where Jesus had healed somebody and made his hand whole. It was a lame lame hand. And, And the people looked at him, the religious people who followed the law to the T, and they said, hey, you can't help that man. That's sin. You healed someone on the Sabbath. And Jesus looked at them and he says, What man among you who sees an ox in a ditch won't pull him out so that he doesn't get hurt even on the Sabbath? Do you not feed your animals on the Sabbath? You leave them in the stall you don't feed them anything? No, you feed them. How much more worth do human beings have than an ox? That's what the law does. 
When people start to measure themselves according to how well they follow the law, they don't care about people anymore. They care about pleasing the law. It's not even any longer about God. There's no mercy. There's no kindness. There's no loving your neighbor like you love yourself. It's all about me and how good I can be in the sight of God. And then we forget that other people exist. So then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But if the one who has healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and a multitude being in that place, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Now go and sin no more, lest a worse thing had come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This man was healed, and afterward he didn't expect anything out of the man. He just healed him. And afterward, he met up with him one-on-one, didn't make a public spectacle. Apparently, this man had been unwell for 30-some years because there was sin. It's not always the case. But in this case, Jesus said, now go and sin no more. Take the freedom I've given you. Don't use it as a license to go out and live for sin and the sensual desires that you have, but go and serve me. Go and sin no more. Repent. So, God has shown us this kind of love. Maybe you weren't lame from birth, but perhaps you had some sort of illness. Perhaps you had some sort of uncleanness from your past. There was sin that was still built into your life and you couldn't get rid of it. And Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And, and all we can say is, there's nobody that can make me well. I've still got this thing and I can't get rid of it. And Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And so we were lame. That's the picture of salvation. We weren't like going okay, but we needed an extra boost of nitrous oxide, you know, for you car racers. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, and Jesus gave us life because we didn't have it. We were dead. Dead men cannot get up on their own. They can't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They can't do it. But Jesus can give us life, and as a result of that, we've been set free from the curse of sin, from the power of sin, and from the desire to sin if we want to be. But don't use that freedom to go back to bondage, is what he's saying. Love your neighbor. Stop loving yourself and start loving your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, if you say, we, we can't do good works for people because I've got X, Y, and Z, I can't be around these people, I can't say, be around people that say this or do this or whatever it might be. They're unclean, they're uncircumcised, they live on the other side of the tracks. Whatever it might be, if we do that, we're biting and devouring one another and we're showing no kindness, we're showing no mercy. Verse 16, he sums it up. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's this war that goes on. The lawn mowing versus talking to the neighbor that I had. That's the war. And so he says, but walk in the spirit. If you walk in the spirit, you won't gratify your flesh. You won't give yourself freedom to sin. You'll, you'll be like, I can't do that. I got to please God. He says, these things are contrary to one another so that if you do not do the things that you wish, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law anymore. You don't have to fulfill the law. Jesus did it. Now you're set free. So how do I know if I'm walking in the flesh or if I'm walking in the spirit? 
Well, Jesus said this. He said, you'll know them by their fruits, right? Wisdom is justified by all her offspring. So we need to inspect the fruit in our own lives. Lord, what kind of fruit am I producing? And then he'll show you. Beware. There's going to be things in there that you've given yourself a pass for for years. And God's going to say, no, that's not okay. Walk in the spirit. That's the flesh. So how do we know which one we're walking in? Is it one of those where we feel better one day and other days we don't feel so good? No. He says this. Here's how you can know. The works of the flesh are evident. They're evidence to what you're walking in. He says, which are? Here's the works of the flesh. Here's the fruit of the flesh. We have the fruit of the Spirit up there. It's kind of hard to see. We have the fruit of the Spirit, right? We've all sang the song. But the fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, we know those, right? We know what love looks like. We know what the fruit of the Spirit is. But what are the... What are the works of the flesh? What are the things that happen when we are in the flesh? And he says this, adultery, fornication. So adultery is sex outside of marriage when you're married. Fornication is sex outside of marriage when you're not married. So he covers both. Either one, not okay. He says uh, uncleanness. Does that mean you're not bathing? No. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about impurity. We are impure. He says lewdness. That's perversion. Twisting everything to be innuendo or some sort of uh, nasty joke. He says idolatry. We talked about that earlier. Idolatry is putting something else in the place of God and worshiping it, making it our priority and not the Lord. He says uh, sorcery. Uh, That word is pharmakia. That's the use of drugs. It is. And then he says, uh, hatred. Uh, Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart, right? So if we hate someone. Then he says, contentions, jealousies, or envy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition. It's about me. Dissensions, heresies, envy, Murder, drunkenness, and revelries. Revelries can be described as just this, and it's, I know it's hard, orgies, revelries, sexual playing around, messing around, using something that was meant for God's use and using it for your own perversion and your own pleasure, and the like. So he's got this whole list, and he just lists them out. Now, there are some things in here that I'm not surprised to see, right? And then there are other things where it's like, whoa, wait a minute, that hits me. And I think everyone in here should, if your heart's right, I think you're going to see something and you're like, wow, I didn't really think about that. I mean, that, I don't struggle with adultery necessarily, but I'm an outburst of wrath guy. I'm, I'm the one that gets upset at the drop of a hat, got the short fuse. I'm there. So what does he say about those who are in any of these habits, continual habits? This isn't talking about one little mess up here and there, but it's something that's a pattern in your life. He says this, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ouch. Those who continue in these things and are not transformed and changed and repentant over these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. God will not let you in. 
That's not works. He's just saying, you are not really abiding in me even though you think you are. And here's the proof. You're doing these things. But then he doesn't stop there. The Bible is not about all the don'ts. If you've ever been in church, you've probably at some point or another been rubbed wrong because somebody's all about, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Okay, that's overwhelming. What am I supposed to do? We're Christians. We're not, not other people. We're, we're supposed to be like Christ, not, not like everyone else. So he says this, but in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So if all these things are selfish and based on the old nature, the fruit of the Spirit, someone who is walking in a relationship with Jesus and being transformed and, and produces fruit, this is what it'll look like. Now, how many of you go out in an orchard? You guys have been to an orchard before. Or a cornfield. You've got the corn maze going on in Caledonia. Do you walk out into a field where things are growing and see tree, trees or plants like out there frustrated and pushing and doing all kinds of work and sweating because they're trying to produce fruit? Or does it happen naturally because of the types of plants that they are? Farmers plant corn plants. Farmers plant orchards with certain trees in them because what they are is what they produce. Orange trees produce oranges. Peach trees produce peaches. If you go out and you say, I've got a peach tree and it starts producing apples, what do you know? It's not a peach tree, it's an apple tree. If you go out into the church and you see people that are saying, I'm a Christian, and they're producing fruit that proves that they're not, draw your own conclusion. Are they really the Lord's? And so he says, put these things off and put on the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, what will naturally come from the life of someone who is walking to please the Spirit. The idea is those who are controlled by the Spirit of God will produce these things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We talked about that, right? Kindness or mercy, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you are Christ, what you have to do is you have to reckon your old nature dead to sin. That's what he said in Romans. Paul wrote that. He said, we reckon our old fleshly nature nailed to the cross and dead because of what Jesus did. When he was nailed to the cross, so were your sins, but so, so was your sinful nature. Here's the problem. Many times try to pull that sinful nature off the cross and go, hey, let's have a good time for just one night or one, just one moment. just want to walk in the flesh for just a minute, and then I'll repent. And God says, don't use your freedoms to walk in the flesh because it, it doesn't just produce that moment. It produces fruit after that. <laughs> the people that watch you live, because of your testimony, because of the way you walk, it will have an impact on many others. No one sins unto themselves. But he says, against these things there's no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Stop comparing yourselves to one another. Don't say, hey, I'm better than that guy. Or I'm better than that gal. You probably are. But that, God's not impressed. 
God's not impressed whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter anymore because if you're in Jesus, all that stuff's been done on your behalf. So now that we don't have to fulfill the law, breathe in, breathe out. God wants to produce in me fruit that shows Jesus is living inside of us. And I want that for me. I want that for you guys. I want that for our valley. Because the presidents, whoever gets voted in, won't change any of that. People will still be hurting. People will still be broken. People will still be angry. People will still mouth. I mean, it's going to happen. But when Jesus comes into a life, he changes all that. He redeems it. He even brings forgiveness and mercy and compassion. But we can't any longer walk according to our own desires because our own desires won't punch that guy in the nose. Our own desires want to get back at them. What Paul said was, I'm not worried about those who have tried to confuse you and draw you away from the truth. God will take care of them. Why don't you just walk with me? So let's pray. Father, we are um, unworthy of all that you've done for us. We are thankful that you did it anyway. And Father, we want to please you. And for some of us, that means that there are things that we're going to have to lay aside. And for some of us, that means that we're going to have to change our, our, our life pattern or where we go or what we see. But Father, none of that earns any more favor in your sight. We can't get celestial brownie points. And we know that now. We pray that you would help us to walk in the Spirit. And as a result of that, we know that you're going ki- to take away the power of the flesh and you're going to strengthen us spiritually so that we can live in a way that pleases you. Teach us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mar- mind, and our strength. Help you to be our desire. And Lord, as a result of that, help us to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. Not just those of us in the room. Lord, help us to love one another in here like you love us, like we love ourselves, and help us to love our neighbors. Lord, give us influence in the lives of those that share fences with us, in the lives of those that share roads with us and drive by our houses too fast and have loud parties when we don't want them to. Lord, help us to show the love of Jesus to them. Lord, may many sinners be converted just like we have been. May they become children of the kingdom. Lord, bring them over to your side. Help us to join in together and love them so that they can join in the chorus that sings all praise and glory and honor to our King. Lord, may they find you to be their King, their Lord, their Savior. And Lord, help us to be your hands and feet to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.